Hello, I'm Donna Robinson, a lawyer with the Arts Law Centre of Australia. This podcast is produced by Arts Law in partnership with Desart, the peak body for Central Australian Aboriginal Arts Centres. This podcast is part of a series of podcasts for arts centres and for the broader visual arts community, where we discuss the legal issues that regularly impact arts centres, artists and arts organisations. In this episode, we're talking about employment law and the things you need to think about from a legal perspective when employing or contracting someone to provide you with services or when you're being employed or contracted to carry out work. Today, we're talking to Edmund Burke. Edmund is a partner in the law firm Holding Redlick and a specialist in employment law. His background is in journalism and he has also worked in politics. Welcome, Edmund. Hi, thanks, Donna. Most of us have the common experience of working for someone and with others. In Australia, workers and employers have fundamental legal rights and obligations. In this podcast, we're going to talk about some of these. We now live in a gig economy where more and more people are becoming contract workers. It's important to know if a worker is protected by employment laws or if they're a contract worker whose legal rights are different from those of an employee and, if so, are often much limited. Edmund, to begin with, what are we talking about here? It may seem like an odd question, but what actually is employment? Well, Really, it's not, it's not an odd question at all. Employment just covers so many different areas. But if you were trying to just sort of sum it up, basically what it is, is, is it's work in exchange for money. And, it, and the thread of what you just said is it's all about people working together too. And it's that how they work together that keeps changing. Absolutely. One of the key features is, is either people working together or people working for somebody else that has a, has a bigger picture. Good, thanks. Now, just turning to this issue of um, contracting or employing someone, how is employing someone different to contracting or commissioning them? Well, the clear distinction is um, an independent contractor or a consultant is somebody that that has much more control over the work they do and when they do it, um, as opposed to an employee that needs to clock in nine to five or whatever whatever it might be. They're told when they're supposed to be in the work workplace they're told the hours that they have to work and, they, and the exact role that they have to do whereas a, a contractor or a consultant is um, engaged for a very distinct project or should be engaged for a distinct project or job um, they invoice for their work they're able to do the work um, in a way that suits them um, sometimes they can subcontract the work they can get somebody else to do it for them um, and they will still invoice for the work so it's really about control, and that's the biggest difference. If you're hiring someone as an independent contractor, um, they might come to the to the job with their own tools, for example. There's a long list of things that that um, the courts use to distinguish um, between an employee and a contractor or an independent contractor. Um, and then there's also um, a lot of distinctions around what it means in terms of uh, the entitlements for the person doing the work. Um, and, and, and the employment structures that are built up around them. Good, thanks. We might talk a little bit later and see if you can give us a bit of a checklist of how to distinguish between the two. But for now, what are some of the basic rights an employee has? Well, um, in Australia we have uh, uh, the national uh, employment standards 
And basically what that is is a, is a list of, of 10 um, rights that all employees have across Australia. Then obviously we have state systems and then there's a distinction between um, people who work uh, uh, in, in, in private endeavours as opposed to people who work for state government, for example, or government-owned corporations. There's different systems in the different states around those. But all of the states do have the national employment standards, and that includes things like you know the maximum number of weekly weekly hours, um, uh, other other things like um, how many sick days sick days a year that you're entitled to, or uh, and so on. Just those basic um, employment entitlements like annual leave, uh, sick leave, uh, long service leave, things like that. Um, is set out in the in the national employment standards. It's a rather marvellous thing we have. It is really, isn't it? Well, it is. Yeah, they're 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 the basic the basic foundations of of of, of people's rights in the workplace here. Now, what happens if you need to terminate someone's employment? What are some of the things you need to consider so that this can be done fairly and lawfully? Well, again, that's a that's a big question, Donna, because. Um, there's so many different reasons why somebody's employment may need to be terminated. You know, obviously there's conduct reasons. Um, there might be performance reasons. Uh, it might be a redundancy. So basically, that person's job has become obsolete, and it doesn't need to be done by anybody anymore. Um, probably conduct is what most people think of um, in terms of being terminated or being dismissed. The exact processes that need to be followed can vary depending on the workplace, depending whether somebody uh, works under a particular award or whether they um, have, have an enterprise agreement in their own workplace or if their contract stipulates a disciplinary process. But really, um, what's universal is that they need to be given the opportunity to respond um, to any allegations that have been made against them. So there's a, a procedural uh, aspect um, that needs to be followed in terms of whatever it is that this person isn't is allegedly um, responsible for, that needs to be set out very clearly for them and they need to have a genuine opportunity to respond and say either, yes, I did do these things and this is the reason why, or I didn't do these things and here's some evidence that backs me up. Um, once that process has been followed, then you'd normally get uh, a decision maker uh, looking at what that person has had to say and making a decision then on the balance of probabilities, what they think is the correct course of action. And is is the decision maker an employee of the the the, the employer? In most instances, absolutely, yes, they will be. There are some circumstances where that can be outsourced. So, you know, for example, the state government might get in a a law firm to do a workplace investigation, um, and as part of that investigation report, they may make recommendations. But then ultimately the decision maker in, say, for example, a state government um, department will be somebody who has the delegated power to make that decision. In a normal workplace, it, it's normally going to be the boss or the head of HR or something like that. Okay, good, thanks. You mentioned two concepts just a moment ago. I was wondering if you could briefly explain to listeners when you refer to award and enterprise agreement what, they, what you're referring to there. Okay, well, awards are um, 
uh, I guess in some ways they're a little bit like the NES in that they set out the minimum standards for that workplace or for that type of uh, work. So say, for example, um, you're somebody that works in sales, uh, there is an award that will apply to you. Uh, that's not something that you've had any part in negotiating or anything like that. It's an award that, that's been uh, verified by the Fair Work Commission uh, and it sets out the minimum uh, conditions in the workplace. Then you might have a contract yourself that gives you more favorable conditions, um, but uh, the contract can't have less favorable conditions than the award. Um, now, an enterprise agreement might be something, some workplaces may have, um, you know, a large number of employees and what they've done is sit down with the employees and their, and their representatives and negotiated um, conditions that apply to all of them. And again, that can then be uh, verified by the Fair Work Commission. Good. Thanks very much. Um, another thorny question in this context is superannuation. Who's entitled to it and how does it work? Generally speaking, um, all permanent employees are entitled to superannuation um, and employers are required to pay it a contribution of, of 9.5% at the moment um, on top of the employee's ordinary earnings and that goes off into their fund. Um, so the, the very, very basic conditions are if you're paid more than $450 in a month, uh, if you're over 18 years old, or if you're under 18 years old and you work um, under 30 hours a week, you're entitled to super. Um, that applies to full-time, part-time employees and some casual employees. Uh, and again, uh, that's, there, there's so many um, irregularities, I guess. So, you, you know, some casuals will be entitled to it and some aren't. Um, but I guess as a rule of thumb, if you're a, what's called a regular and systematic a casual worker, somebody who's in the workplace um, regularly and um, isn't quite a permanent employee, but is certainly somebody that, that um, is on the books and has been on the books for quite some time, it's quite likely that they will be entitled to some superannuation. Um, it's paid every three months at least into the employee's account. And, and I think some uh, workers who may in fact be contract workers or contractors are deemed to be workers for the purpose of being entitled to receive superannuation. Is that right? So independent contracting is, is quite a grey area in terms of who's an independent contractor and who's an employee. Um, it's really almost on a case-by-case -case basis. And um, in most circumstances, independent contractors need to make their own super contributions. So they just get all of their, all of their pay. They don't have tax taken out, they don't have superannuation taken out, and then it's up to them to make their own arrangements. Now, there are exceptions to that. Um, for example, when a contract is hired wholly or principally for labour, then they should be entitled uh, to super. Um, but there's, 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 very many, there's, there's a lot of exceptions, um, and it is something that, that has to be looked at closely if, you, if you're not quite sure whether you're entitled to it or not. Yes, well, I, I mean, I suppose that's a, it's it's an issue for both the employer and the employee because they have very different rights associated with them, don't they? Well, yes, and I mean, for the employer, um, I guess a lot of people may not have too much sympathy, but an employer can be really badly caught out and can be really badly caught out through no fault of their own or certainly through no sort of sinister motives on their part. Um, 
they could have been hiring people, for example, on an independent contractor arrangement. And as far as they were concerned, they were paying them over and above what they would get as an employee. Um, they would have believed that they were genuinely contractors. Um, but it is possible then, for example, if somebody was sacked or for conduct reasons or something like that, they may have a claim that says, well, actually, I was an employee for that entire period, and that means I'm entitled to superannuation at a particular rate. And what the uh, Fair Work Commission sometimes will do is go back over the uh, previous six years, and an employee, employer will find themselves paying that super to the former employee. But that can be compounded by the fact they may have 20, 30, 40, 50 other people on that they think are independent contractors, but who in fact are employees. Um, so it can be a huge issue for employers. Yes, and I suppose the issue is particularly poignant when the worker is working either casually or part-time. It's more difficult to distinguish then than if they are in full and long-term employment. Yeah, look, that can add an extra layer of, um, of confusion about it. Um, you know, if, if, if somebody is working and is characterised as uh, a casual, but in actual fact, the work that they're doing is is matches up with a part-time permanent position. Um, and especially if they've been doing that same role over a period of time, it's very, very likely that they're actually an employee and not um, either a casual or a contractor. And um, in those circumstances, then, you know, the employer can get caught out and the employee can be missing out on, on their entitlements. Mm. And what kind of questions should the employer or the employee ask? Are you able to give us a bit of a checklist for what people should be looking out for? Absolutely, yeah. And look, there, there actually is a checklist. If you go to the, uh, the Fair Work Ombudsman has a checklist um, that's quite good uh, on their website. But the, um, the reality is even, even these are changing regularly because of decisions that come out of the courts. Um, but things like, for example, uh, the employee's de degree of control over how the work is performed. So if somebody performs work under the direction and control of their employer, and they do that on an ongoing basis, they're more likely to be an employee. But an independent contractor um, could have a high level of control over how the work is done. Um, so, for example, the job needs to be done, but... It's not a question of you've got to come in at particular hours every day. You've got to do it in a certain time. Once you've been contracted as an independent contractor, you can do the job in the way that suits you. Um, so that's things like the hours of work, uh, uh, you know, the the, uh, the tools and equipment that you would bring that are your own tools and equipment. The method of payment, for example, um, if you're an independent contractor, you're going to invoice for the work that you've done. You're going to have an ABN um, and you'll be paid at either intervals or when the project is finished. Um, whereas an employee obviously is on the payroll and they get everything done automatically for them. Um, a contractor uh, will not have paid leave and will not expect to receive paid leave. Uh, a contractor will bear the risk of making a profit or a loss on a, on a job, um, whereas obviously an employee is paid to do the job and, and if the business ends up not succeeding, the employee will still get paid. Um, so it's things like that, um, and it's, that's not an exhaustive list. It, you know, we, could, we, could, we could talk about that all day. Um, obviously tax as well 
is something that's automatically deducted if you're an employee. Um, but if you're an independent contractor, that's something that you work out yourself with the ATO. But what the courts have said is that um, what's important is the actual job that you're doing rather than the document that you have that describes the work that you're doing. So if you have a, if you're contracted and you have a contract that says I'm an independent contractor, but in actual fact, the work that you're doing means you're an employee or the conditions of the work that you're doing means that you're an employee, the courts will go behind that document to look at the work that you're doing to decide whether you're a contractor or an employee. Yes, but having said that, it's still better to have a written contract because then at least you've got the details that govern the relationship even if it ter turns out that you've wrongly characterised someone as a contractor instead of oh, as yeah. an employee. You should, look, absolutely, you should always have a document that sets out the arrangement, whether you're an employee or a contractor. Um, it's for everybody's benefit to have a document like that because, um, and again, we could talk all day, but there is a, a principle of by your conduct you can create a contract. So if you don't engage somebody with a document, the work that they are doing becomes the contract. So again, um, mm. if it ended up in court, it'd be a question of looking at the conditions that they'd worked under to see what their entitlements were. And you really don't want to go there if you can avoid it? You never want to go to court if you can avoid it. What about the gig economy, Edmund? In terms of what people call the gig economy, it's... Um, covers a lot of areas and for a lot of people it might mean things like you know an uber driver or or a deliveroo driver and that you know they they certainly are areas that um that have been thought of as as the gig economy but it really is spreading into all areas of the work um the working um, environment um you know even corporate jobs and certainly artists as well will find themselves working under similar conditions sometimes and really what the gig economy is, when you boil it right down, is people working as independent contractors, or certainly that's what the companies um, who, who utilise it want want their relationship to be viewed as. And the reason why that matters, obviously, is if you're an independent contractor and not an employee, there's no minimum wage, for example. You've, if you're an independent contractor, you don't get leave entitlements. If you're an independent contractor, you don't have unfair dismissal rights. You're an independent contractor, you know, you're not entitled to overtime or super or long service leave. So it's really, really important if if you're working in that gig economy that um, if you can, and if it's um, if the reality of the relationship is that you are an employee, it's really, really important that 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 is established. Um, there's been lots of cases, obviously, about this, and most of them have centered on you know Uber or Deliveroo, and unfortunately rather than really clarify the issue, what, what they have done is added another layer of almost individualising each matter. So really it does come down to a case-by-case -case basis. Which doesn't help us all, unfortunately, because, as you say, we're all working in a gig economy now, some people on the front line, and you don't need to be a food delivery driver to be um, vulnerable as a worker in a gig economy. Absolutely not. And look, there there are many, many reasons why employers would 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 like to identify you as an independent contractor in a in a gig economy gig economy type structure. Um, and to a large extent, I think artists need to be um, vigilant that they're not taken advantage of in that in that way. Um, last question: 
Some organisations, such as art centres, might have arts workers who are artists themselves or who are closely connected or related to artists at the art centre. What if some of the ways that the art centre can manage those relationships to ensure that everybody, that's the employees and the artists, are treated fairly and lawfully in that scenario? Well, um, look, again, that's, it's, a, it's a very broad question. Um, people have to be aware of their own rights. So, so and I would have thought in particular artists um, who are really self-employed um, for the most part um, need to be aware of what their rights are. Uh, good places to look for, for the basics are, would be the Fair Work Commission website or the, or the Fair Work Ombudsman website. Um, an employee and an employer should be keen that whatever the arrangements are, that they're formalised in, in a document. Um, and that can be helpful if you're trying to figure out whether somebody is an employee or an independent contractor before you've engaged them. You can look at what the job's going to involve and what their position description is um, in the document that, that governs their employment, and that can help you make that final decision of, of, of what their true position is. Um, but look, as a very, very basic bottom line for artists, they, artists need to understand what their rights are. Um, and good places to start are at places like the National Employment Standards, at the Fair Work Commission website, Fair Work Ombudsman website. And then obviously for employers, the same thing applies. For employers, though, I, I really do recommend, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a lawyer, that they get um, advice when they're engaging people and they make sure that the documents that they're using are are fit for purpose and aren't going to come back and bite them, you know, 10 years down the line when somebody realises that they have been um, working under conditions that mean they are entitled uh, to other things. Right. Well, Arts Law has some very helpful template contracts on our website for employment, for contractors and commission agreements. We have templates for art centre employees and we have one for Indigenous language centre employees. We have a contractor template for performers. We have film, cast and crew agreements and various other contracts if you're engaging someone for a specific project. If you're not sure which works best for your circumstances, give us a call. Edmund, thank you very much for your time today. It's been thank very you, helpful. I hope, it, I hope it was helpful. Thank you. As always, if you have any questions, please contact Arts Law via email, artslaw at artslaw.com.au. Please drop us a line and let us know what you think and if you have any ideas for topics you'd like to hear about, please let us know, as often the questions one person has are shared by others and we'll try to do a podcast on your question or give you one-on-one legal advice. This is part of a series of podcasts created by Arts Law in partnership with Desart. You can find them on our website and on the SAM database and they'll be available on podcast services soon. You can also find our podcasts on various other topics including copyright, moral rights, online exhibitions, social media and cyber security and data governance. Thanks to Edmund Burke for providing his insight and time and thank you for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is intended as a guide to the law only. It is not legal advice and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. Legal advice should be sought on the specific issues affecting you.